0: Alright, you need to begin now. I'll give you a head start to make your way to the book of Philemon. Gold star to whoever gets there within the next three minutes. What page? It's on page 1,112. (laughs) Lying from the (laughs) pulpit, yeah. The cell phone. While you're... It's okay to use the table of contents all the Bible drill pros over here you've been waiting for this moment for a long time I should start looking for it Titus Philemon Hebrews can I find it while I'm in front of people Titus Philemon oh I was close I was six pages off I suppose I did just lie in the pulpit while you're still making your way there, I feel like I should remind some poor souls tomorrow's Valentine's Day. And what I mean by that is the men who have forgotten that tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Yeah. We'll read Philemon here in a moment. But the world that we live in is. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's it's so incredible that it can be, and it's so full of wonder that it can be overwhelming and sort of mind-numbing. We, we get used to living in a remarkable world. I mean, do you know that when you went outside this morning, there's a ball of fire that hangs in the sky that gives us light? That's pretty cool. But none of you thought about that today, did you, right? We're, we get We get used to this. As a father, I remember that I remember this often as I had the chance to explain, you know, things to my children, incredible things that, that they're thinking about that I've almost f- forgotten about, right? This morning, I was taking Karis to school, and uh, we were pulling out of the driveway, and she said, she said, Daddy, can you go ahead and turn the heat on? I was like, well... You're going to you're have to wait because yeah, my truck stays outside and uh, it was cold this morning. And I, was, I was trying to explain to her that, you know, the heat doesn't come on as fast as it does in mommy's car. They're nestled in the garage and the heat. Happy Valentine. Yeah, that's right. So I did what any father would do. I took that as a chance to explain combustible engines <laughs> to my, I'm serious, to, to my daughter. I explained, I explained to Karis how, how engines work and how fuel goes into uh, the cylinders and it lights on fire and explodes and, and produces force and, and produces heat. I told my dad this today and he couldn't believe that I even knew this stuff, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and she was just amazed. Like we were, we were driving down the road and she said, so basically the front of the car, is on fire, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah. It's remarkable. I, I'd forgotten. Sa- same thing's true with butterflies, right? I mean, uh, just think of these amazing creatures, right? Before a child gets to kindergarten, a child understands that butterflies come from caterpillars, right? Have you thought about how incredible this is? Caterpillar, caterpillars, into, like a, they turn into a new insect, like that's that's so cool. Like and they turn into butterflies, right? They they might even in grade school learn the name of this remarkable process. Anyone remember metamorphosis? Right. Thank you, teachers and Bible drill. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you might know. And yeah. Uh, but, but recent changes in technology, something called micro-CT scans, have enabled scientists to, to learn and to gain new insight into what, how metamorphosis takes place, right? How in the world does a chubby, fuzzy, slow caterpillar that I loved to squish when I was a kid, how does that turn into a... I mean, it crawls real slow, Right? And granted, it can crawl anywhere, which is awesome. I wish I could do that, right, upside down. Right? But the, it turns into a creature that flies. right? It's like out of a superhero movie. The images that scientists now have inside the chrys- Chrysosal? chrysalis. <laughs> it's been a while. Right? The, the images that we have inside there re- reveal that what is taking place... It is incredible during this transformation. The transformation from caterpillar to butterflies, this combination of some of the caterpillars old ways being Destroyed and new ways being developed. Some of the old patterns of thinking, right, is to think about, okay, I don't crawl, I fly, and look awesome doing it, right? The, the, the old patterns of thought and the old muscles and, and the function of the body has changed, combined with new ways of thinking. The article I read, it said this, it said, certain cells die and body parts atrophy. Meanwhile, other cells in place since birth rapidly expand and the adult emerges completely remodeled and capable of flight and possessing a completely rewired brain. That is so cool, right? I don't think Darwin got it right, you know? The wonder of the transformation of a caterpillar to butterfly defies my descriptive ability. I can't even pronounce the basic words, right? But even that comes short of what takes place when a human, a sinner, is spiritually born again. Remember that Jesus chose this particular image for conversion. We learned that back in John chapter 3. That, the, that a person that becomes a Christian undergoes a new birth. Which is such a radical transformation, right? Birth is like a big deal. Right? Right? It's such a radical transformation that even though she's the same person, she becomes a new creature. I think we could say that the transformation that takes place at new birth is the most wonderful transformation in the universe. Many of us are so familiar with these words, words like conversion or new birth and, and things like this, that, that they may have lost their wonder for us much like a butterfly or a combustible engine had to me. But, but when we as Christians fail to understand the radical transformation that takes place at conversion and what that means for all of our Christian lives, then I fear that we are in great danger of living lives that are colorless and bland and perhaps even mostly useless tonight we begin a study of this brief little book here on page 120 or 1120 it's an obscure it's one of the shortest books in the Bible Philemon and it's a book that even though it may feel obscure touches on a number of important dimensions of the Christian life matters of forgiveness of fellowship relationships and service and even the dignity of human persons. But I think central to all of these ideas is this picture of the radical transformation that takes place as we come to know Jesus as Savior. And if you've come to know Christ as Savior, then you are, you absolutely must be, you are a new creature. Which means that radical change Hear this, friends. Radical change is the true effect of the gospel. You cannot truly understand the gospel and not be radically changed. Now, in some people, this this change is seen rapidly, it's really fast. And I think for some of us, it's slower, and that's sad. But for all true Christians, we are radically changed. If we're not radically changed, we're not Christians. We're not born again. This is a picture of the lives, of lives that have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we get in this book. And now we see them working out their salvation. This is, these men and these women, this is not some mild profession of faith, but a proved faith. Faith. We have, in fact, this is a private letter, just think about this, between a murderous religious terrorist, a runaway slave and thief, and a slave owner. These are the characters for us, right? Each of whom has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was driving down the road today and I was thinking about some things that are going on in our denomination and thinking about areas of my life that I still need to grow, and I just marveled anew. God forgives and cleanses sinners. This is remarkable. If you have gotten over that, you've lost the joy of your salvation. May that be fresh to us each day. It's one thing that God can turn a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's an altogether different thing that God can take scoundrels and turn them into Christians. And that encourages me, because if God can change them, then God can change me, and God can change you. And so there's hope for us. Let's read this whole letter together. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epiphah, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing even me, even your own self." Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. So refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little letter. We pray that tonight, that as we consider it, that you would reveal your truth to us. Impart it to our hearts with application and clarity and conviction and force. Father, what needs to be done here tonight cannot be done by humans. So we plead... For your spirit to work among us. Help us to leave here more like Christ. Further along in our journey of sanctification. Where one day we will be fully glorified as we see you as you are. We long for this day, but until then we pray, help us by your power. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, let's try to get our bearings in this little letter. Unlike most of Paul's letters, this is a personal, perhaps we could call it even a private, letter from Paul to Philemon. Of course, Paul tells us in the letter that he is now an old man and he is a prisoner, right? We think he's probably under house arrest at this time. And the reason that this note is usually grouped with Colossians, right, is because it was Philemon was probably a resident of Colossae. He might even been a member of the church there at Colossae. The letter was probably extremely likely that it was sent at the same time that Paul sent the letter to the Colossians. And what's interesting is that even though this letter is semi-private, I say that because like we're reading it, right? Even though this letter is is semi-private, Paul's greeting there in verse 2 shows that he intends for it to be read to the whole church, right? He's greeting the church and he just sent a whole letter to to the Colossians, right? And the reason he wants it read to the church, we presume, is because it has value. It has theological and practical value, not only to Philemon, but to Christians everywhere. As I trust we will see as we study. And this is why Philemon is in the Bible, right? I presume if we found Paul's grocery list, we wouldn't put that in the Bible, even though it's written by Paul. Uh, This has theological value. But what do we know about Philemon, right? The, the man. He well is probably a wealthy businessman. His house seemed to be large enough to host the church. Uh, verse 19 tells us that Philemon himself was probably led to Christ by Paul. Or no, that he was led to Christ by Paul. He was his spiritual child. And then from Paul's greeting in language throughout the letter, it's clear that, that Philemon and his family, or his wife and his son, as we read in the greeting. That they were active in Christian ministry, not like not not like uh, I don't want to diminish any Christian ministry, not not like they just showed up and like did the work day at the church, but like they were active in Christian ministry. They were involved. We read about this there in verse one. He calls him a fellow worker, and then the report that we'll cover tonight in verses four through seven, right, the details of his life show us that he was an active Christian. Another thing that we need to mention is that Philemon, who was a Christian and who was active in ministry, he owned slaves, which adds quite a wrinkle to this letter, does it not? More on that in a minute. What do we know about Onesimus, besides the fact that he has a cool name? Right? He was a runaway slave who had escaped from his master, Philemon. And he was living, as a runaway, he was living a dangerous life. In Rome and around Rome, there were men who worked as bounty hunters, working to return slaves, runaway slaves, to their owners. And fugitives, slave fugitives could be killed, right? Uh, And he was a fugitive. He was guilty, probably, of, of two crimes, both of which could potentially carry the death penalty, running away as a slave, but he was also a thief, As we think from verse 18, it seems like that he took some money. If nothing else, he stole labor from his master. Somehow, though, he had made his way to Rome where he had met Paul. And in those days, if you met Paul, guess what was going to happen? You were going to hear about one Jesus Christ. And like thousands of others, when Onesimus met Paul, Onesimus, who ran away a lost man, found Paul and he found Christ. His conversion was validated by a radical change. There's an interesting play on words throughout this letter. We miss it in our English translation. But the, the name Onesimus means useful. And Paul uses this word a couple times, right? There in verse 11 especially, and also in verse 13, he, po- he points out that, you know, the, the man named Useful, who was useless to you, is now very useful to me, and he will be useful even more to you, right? It, it's, I think, hinting at a radical change that has taken place. But Anismas, though he was transformed, was still a fugitive. Still a criminal. And what's even more important is that the man that he sinned against was a brother, a Christian. And so it was a matter that had to be dealt with. And so Paul stepped in to play pastor and to be a mediator between the two. It's interesting that he doesn't take the tone of of an apostle, which you heard me read, but he takes the tone more of a pastor or a brother, an encourager. But before we get into the theology of this book, I think this is probably the time to go ahead and address the matter of, of slavery. It's a topic that came up back in Colossians, right? You see a lot of similarities in, in Colossians and Philemon. But uh, it came up especially in verse 22 of chapter 3 where we spent a whole evening thinking about Paul's command where it says bondservants servants are slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You can imagine Onesimus there with Paul assisting him, and Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, and Onesimus is probably like, whoops, struggling with chapter 3, verse 22. And so he moves to remedy this. But but on slavery, we, we addressed slavery at some length back then, but since the whole letter of Philemon is about a runaway slave being returned to his master, I think we need to address it again. Slavery was extremely common in the Roman Empire and in surrounding provinces. But it was different, as we've said before, from what you and I think of when we think of slavery. We think of the British American slave trade, and 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 it was especially different for city slaves like Anisimus. Right? There's quite a bit of variety in in the way slaves were treated in this time, and it changed rapidly uh, at the coming of Christ or around, around that time. Um, and but so let me just quickly point out a few differences. First of all, slavery was not based on race. It was not based on reg- racial prejudice. People were generally not enslaved or dehumanized because of the color of their skin. It's a big difference. Secondly, they were not acquired through systematic kidnapping, right? That was another big difference. Third, uh, slavery was generally, it was not permanent. Slaves often worked with contracts, financial contracts, that often were for a period of about 10 or 15 years. Sometimes it was even to pay off a debt, or for, uh, they would sell themselves or, or work out an arrangement. Also, slaves had rights and they were protected by the law. In some cases, it was not followed. In some cases, it was uh, abused. But they did have rights. We, there are some instances where slaves even took their masters to court. Right? So that's obviously quite different. Some slaves acquired slaves for themselves. Slaves could uh, go get education. They could become accountants and and and, uh, and even doctors. And in some cases, or you have to understand that due to the economic hardship of just life in this time, life as a slave was sometimes preferable to life as a free man, right? There's basically a guarantee that you would have food and shelter and, and, and clothing, right? You're guaranteed work. So some slaves didn't want to be freed, we even know some instances where masters would leave their inheritance to slaves. Right? There were, there, we, have, we have evidence that there were deep friendships among masters and slaves. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that slavery was good or that uh, as an institution it was useful. There were plenty of occasions where slaves were mistreated. We have one record in history where uh, a, a slave rose up and killed his master, and the 400 slaves that were owned by this master were all killed as a punishment, as a deterrent. Right, so it's by no means like some good arrangement, right? So, but there's a fair amount of diversity, and folks disagree over, over what slavery was like during this time. My point is that the institution was different, and it was not built on uh, cruel racial exploitation. But that brings up a troubling question. Why didn't Paul speak about it? Or why didn't Jesus speak about it? Now, we've tried to answer that question for Paul in part back in Colossians. We said that, remember, Paul's writing a letter to a church, a letter to be read during a worship service, so it's not, a, it's not the time to address a major social institution, right? The ethics of, of the institution. Instead, Paul is addressing the Christians inside of the church and inside of the institutions of that society. He was concerned with, how does a Christian live where they are? And as we'll see, rather than attacking the institution directly, Paul's teaching, along with Christ's teaching, really upends slavery and all the abuses that are involved with it by addressing the heart of those who heard his message. It's interesting that even in Philemon, Paul doesn't demand that Philemon release Onesimus. Did you catch that? He doesn't demand that he release them, but I would say that what he does demand is even more radical. Verse 16, he says, instead of treating Anisimus like a slave, treat him like a brother. Slavery as an institution falls down when humans treat others like their brothers. But what about Jesus? Jesus came at a time, he came at the fullness of time, but he came right into the heart of the Roman occupation where slavery was certainly common. Why didn't he speak about it more directly? Well, on this we have to speculate, right? But I think that we can speculate fairly well just think about it. If Jesus had come and addressed the topic of slavery, right, the social issue of slavery, what do you think would have happened to his ministry? It would have been radically different, wouldn't it? It would have completely altered the nature of his ministry. He would have become a political activist, a social activist, rather than a teacher of the kingdom of God. Such a teaching would uh, surely have sparked a slave revolt, Which would be squashed by the Romans. And then suddenly Jesus' message, his message of the gospel would have been swallowed up by a social gospel. A message of social reform. And as we said last time and as we'll see in Philemon, Christianity and the gospel sow the seeds. They sowed the seeds that would eventually lead to the destruction of slavery. Christianity, at the very least, destroys slavery's abuses. You cannot abuse someone that you are treating like a brother. Not biblically. And given the widespread abuses of slavery, the institution eventually withered, in large part due to the influence of Christianity. There's much more that we could say. I know this doesn't answer all the questions. But let's move, on to, let's move on to the text. Our focus tonight will, with this lengthy introduction will be on verses 1 through 7. And I think that the main point of Paul's letter is to encourage Philemon to forgive. And to be committed to radical reconciliation with someone who has sinned against him. To be reconciled to a brother, Onesimus. But what we're going to see is, it's interesting. I mean, it's a very, Paul's letter is a very gentle, and I would say very nuanced request, right? There's times where, I mean, it's, uh, you, you can't tell, like, is Paul, like, joking? Is he, like, is, is he, <laughs> we'll, we'll see as we get there. There's times where his, his letter is a little salty, right? If you know what I mean. It adds, it adds some spice, And his plea is powerful. Paul basically says, he says, hey, he's like, hey, I could command you to do this. He said that there in verse 8. I could use my right as an apostle. It's not something that we have. Paul had the right of an apostle. But instead, Paul chooses to make a nuanced plea. And this is important for us to understand the message of this letter. Paul's plea goes all the way back to the very heart of the gospel. It goes back to Philemon's conversion. And even though he doesn't explicitly say it like he does in other places, the forgiveness that Paul is calling for is one that flows out of a heart that has been changed. Paul makes this call explicit in other places. He did it in Ephesians. He does it in Romans. He did it in Colossians. Do you remember Colossians chapter 3? That we are to bear with one another, forgiving one another. And if one has a complaint against another, to forgive each other, just as who? As Christ has forgiven us. As Christ and God has forgiven us. Paul appeals to Philemon's Christian character. In other words, my take on it is something like this. Paul is saying, in effect, something like this. Hey, Philemon... I see your life. I can clearly see that God has been at work in your life. And I can clearly see the fruit of the gospel. I see your faith. And I see your love. And so I'm confident you are going to be eager to forgive Onesimus. I don't even need to command you to do this. In just a minute, we'll run through the evidence for Philemon's faith in verses 4 through 7. But you need to see this point. Paul is expecting Philemon to act and live in accordance with his profession. His profession of faith. He claims to be a Christian, so Paul expects for him to do what? Act like a Christian. Friends, we must not forget this. This is what the Lord expects from each one of us who follows Christ. Do you remember what he said, what Paul said back in Colossians chapter 2? Just as you received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in Him. Right? If you have received Christ, then live as a receiver of Christ. Friends, we demonstrate our commitment to following Christ not by making some single profession of faith, not by putting a fish on the back of our car, not by joining a church, but by a daily commitment to following Jesus. You cannot be a follower of Christ and not follow Jesus every day. It is a serious, serious commitment in fact, I think verses 1 and 2 give us some hints about this. Quickly notice the language that Paul uses. Paul identifies himself as what? A prisoner. A prisoner. He identifies Philemon as a worker. He identifies Philemon's son as a soldier. Prisoner, worker, soldier. Friends, the call to follow Christ is not a life of ease. Prisoner, soldier, worker. It's a life of labor. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of growth. It's a life of striving hard after the Lord. It's a life of self-discipline. It's a life of making every effort to add to our faith. How tempting is it to forget this? The longer you've walked with Christ, the easier it is to forget, it may be. How tempting is it to stamp your ticket to heaven to achieve some measure of Christian respectfulness, right? Whatever measure you think you need, whatever you're content with, and then just sit back and enjoy the ride. I think that's really common. How different is that than Paul's command to work out your salvation, Philippians 2, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Friends, I would want to ask you, how much of your life today, how much of your life this week was committed to living out the profession of faith? How many of your decisions did it influence? What sacrifices did it prompt? What work was induced because of it? What comforts did you say no to? Is your life, my dear friend, is it characterized by a serious commitment to work out your salvation? Philemon's was. And Paul, even from a distance, saw the pattern of Philemon 's life, and, and he appealed for him to continue in that pattern in his relationships in reconciliation, Which means that verses four, and, four through seven give us a picture of Christian maturity. They give us a picture of a life that has been shaped, that is matured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that for us, it's worthy of emulation. I see at least five. I had six. but I thought I wouldn't have time. Uh, five or six. We'll see. Uh, characteristics of maturing Christians here in these verses. We'll look just at these uh, several verses tonight. And then we'll pick up on the main um, parts of Philemon uh, next time we gather in verses eight and following. But let's look at some characteristics of maturing Christians. Right, notice the activeness of that nature. Characteristic number one, maturing Christians are concerned with pleasing the Lord. Maturing Christians are concerned with pleasing the Lord. In verse 5, Paul says that he's praising God because he he has heard about the faith, that he sees the faith that Philemon has, which is directed towards an object, right? Towards a person, and that's the Lord, His faith is in the Lord, and so Paul is excited about the faith that he has in the Lord. And Paul identifies what is undoubtedly the central concern of the Christian life. Pleasing God. Friends, that is our primary aim. To please God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says... Whether we're at home in our bodies or away, or whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we make it our aim to please the Lord. For the Christian who calls Christ as Lord, we must seek to honor him, not on occasion, but in every single circumstance. Do you feel the weight of that? Every circumstance. The most frequent question on our hearts throughout the day should be, how can I please the Lord in this situation? How can I please the Lord as I clean up this spilled milk or this poop (laughs) in some of our cases? How can I please him as I do this? How can I please him as I work? How can I please him as I love this complaining person or correct This complaining person. You see, at the heart of the Christian life is a deep conviction that we owe everything to Christ. That we who were sinners, who were dead in our trespasses and sin, because of no goodness on our own, Christ has looked upon us and given us new life. He has cleansed us of our sin and he's granted us an eternal inheritance that would blow your mind if you could understand it. That he has done that for us and we don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it then and all the good things we've done since then don't even come close to scratching the surface of all that we owe him. We owe him everything. We owe him our very lives. He's given us new life. And so, the life we live, we live by faith. We live for Him, to please Him. Back in Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, So, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father. Makes us think of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Friends, there is no moment of your day that God is not concerned with exercising his lordship in your life. He's not just your Lord on Sundays. He's not just your Lord on Wednesday nights, and he was not just your Lord at your baptism. To follow Christ means continual surrender and submission to Him. Our aim, we must be concerned with pleasing the Lord. And if you want to grow, grow in your concern with that. Grow in your concern with pleasing the Lord. Ask that question more frequently How can I please the Lord in this situation? You'll find it's kind of an annoying question sometimes. Because you don't want to please God, you just want to be mad. Or be cranky. Or you just want to go to bed. (laughs) Right? But we make it our aim to please Him. We don't get entangled in civilian affairs. We follow Him. All of this is reiterated at the end of verse 6. Where we see that all Christian maturity is for the sake of Christ. That was one of the characteristics that I cut out. We could see it at the end of, uh, I said verse 6. Yeah, we we do all this for the sake of... Of Christ, Maturing Christians are concerned with the glory of Christ. We are chiefly concerned with pleasing Him because we want everyone to know how great He is. Closely connected with this point of pleasing God and in bringing glory to Christ is the concern of loving people, and that's the second point. Maturing Christians are concerned with loving people. We also see this in verse 5. Not only did Philemon love the Lord, but he loved... It doesn't come through quite as clearly in the English translation, but but in in the Greek, there's a a structure that that makes a really strong connection between having faith in God, which you'll also see there in verse 5, and love towards people. Faith in God and love towards the saints. And this should not surprise us. Why? Because we know the great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't follow one without following two. You can't follow two without following one. For one, C2. For two, C1. Right? They go, they go together. You cannot love God and not love people. You cannot love God and not love his church. And my goodness, that's that's a hard message sometimes. Because there's some people that are hard to love. You cannot love God and not love his church, his people. Which is why we can see, I mean, this is so closely connected with forgiveness, which we'll see unfold in this nice letter. Loving God and loving people always goes hand in hand. And of course, love doesn't just mean it's not, it's not an emotion, it's not just, it's not just general kindness towards people that are mostly likable, and it certainly isn't selecting the people you like and, and you know, making each other feel mutually good about yourselves. That, that's, that's not love, right? Agape love flows from a decision to act for the good of others, it's a decision to act on behalf of others, usually in a way that costs you something. It's, it is by its very nature self-sacrificing. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's not love, right? It's receiving something. It doesn't mean it's unloving. It just means it's not love. Love is self-sacrificing, and it is an essential mark of the Christian life. If you are not loving, you are not a Christian. Sounds harsh? 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of life into death. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Oh, friends, we need to apply that to all of our difficult relationships. Whoever does not love abides in death. Maturing Christians are concerned with loving people, which means they're concerned with growing in their love for people. A third mark is maturing Christians are concerned with Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. Verse 6. In the ESV, it, how does it say it? It speaks of the sharing of your faith. Right? Remember, the Bible is not written in English. We have to translate it. And so this phrase, the sharing of your faith, the the, the word there is the word for fellowship, right? Which we, we get with sharing, right? The, the, fellow, the koinonia, the the sharing of faith, and that's the word that is used here, and it's tricky to understand exactly, I think some, uh, some versions translate it, fellowship, because that's what the word is, but it's tricky to understand what, what Paul means here. I think, I think this is the hardest verse of the whole book, to be honest with you, but uh, I think what's going on is something like this. I think that Paul is referring to the participation in the community of faith. Okay. those are words gotta have meaning right for, for our participation our activity our involvement in the body in the community of the church that is Christians are to be committed to learning to live out their faith with other people this is radical friends God does not intend you to grow into maturity just you and the Holy Spirit he can do it right he can do that But that's not his design. His design is you, the Holy Spirit, and all the people in this room, right? (laughs) He intends for us to grow into maturity by the power of the Spirit, yes, but within the context of fellowship. That's why if you are not active in a church, I don't mean a member, I don't mean if you show up on Sunday, I mean if you are not active in a church, I believe you are living in sin, There needs to be a major commitment in our lives to walking with Jesus with other people. That we are are to be walking with Jesus with other people who are walking with Jesus. The Christian life is a joint venture. And I believe that God has intended for it to be far more intimate than we think. We Americans are individualists and we like doing our own thing. That's not how it works in the Christian life. There's so many implications here, but the most obvious is that there need to be multiple people in this church who have full access to your walk with God. Yeah, you can have you can have wonderful Christian friends that go to other churches. But I believe the bulk of them, the bulk of the active Christian friends in your life need to be in this church. And if you don't have those, you need to develop those. Which means you've got to love bulk of your friendships need to be with Christians in the body of believers that you've committed to know God with. That's what membership is. There need to be multiple people in this church who have full access to your walk with God. That means they know how you struggle. That means they know how frequently you read or don't read your Bible. That means they know if you don't give. They know and they can help. Paul's prayer is that this kind of lifestyle, this communal experience of faith would be powerful and effective. There, one of the reasons that you may not be growing very much is that there are not other people helping you grow. And that takes friendships, fellowship, or sharing of your faith. But that's closely connected with this next idea, uh, the the fourth idea, is that maturing Christians are concerned with living their faith. Verse 6, Paul is praying that the fellowship of their faith would work, right? That it would be effective. And then he says, into full knowledge. It's An interesting phrase for the full knowledge. Okay, so uh, I'll just quickly, this is not head knowledge. This is not how little I know about butterflies or combustible engines. This is experience. Experiential knowledge. There's a vast difference between head knowledge, duh, and experiential knowledge. A terrible example of this is 1864. And now infamous group of American pioneers set out by wagon to travel and settle from Missouri to California. It's a trip that normally would take about six months, which is a long time, I presume, in a wagon with children and animals, right? Can you imagine? And so in that day, a lot of people were doing this, but there were people that would sell brochures about how to do this journey, like travel guides, and there were a few people that would sell a brochure that talked, talked about a shortcut that would take months off the trip, one that crosses the mountains of Utah. The problem is that the guy who wrote this brochure had never actually been to Utah or to California. He never traveled the route, but nonetheless... A large group of people, 90 people, followed this route and got stuck in the winter in the mountains of Utah. And 47 of the 87 people died. Some of them uh, reverting to cannibalism. Experiential knowledge is totally different than factual knowledge. Philemon has read about forgiveness, right? But that is very different than actually forgiving Onesimus. Now it's time for him to develop experiential knowledge of forgiveness. God is calling for us to gain experience. That's why your life is hard. (laughs) He's calling for you not to just know about him, but to know him and the fellowship of his suffering. And Christians that fail to enjoy this sort of meaningful, practice, application-oriented fellowship, right? This takes place with the people around you. They're stunted in their Christian maturity. You will never meet a mature mature Christian who matured without the local church. Finally, maturing Christians are concerned with refreshing one another. I love the warmth of verse 7, right? We We get a quick taste of how much affection Paul had for his brother Philemon, and presumably he had for saints all over. And we can see the effect of their friendship. Paul had received love and comfort from Philemon's life. And many saints, he says, had been refreshed, verse 7, through his ministry, through his life. How many people have been refreshed by your life? This is a picture of the fruit of healthy Christian friendships. God in his marvelous providence has ordained that we can know and experience His grace through other people. we talked about that at some length. We developed that idea extensively at the end of Colossians 4. And so let me just remind you like this. There are hurting, struggling, weary people around you. In fact, everyone around you is in some sense hurting, struggling, and weary. And God has given you, Christian, he's given you his spirit and he has equipped you with the power to influence and refresh the hearts of the saints. And so for all the difficulties that may arise in our relationships, and there are many, relationships are a mess, there are times when we may scratch our heads and ask, how in the world could I possibly please God in this circumstance? One thing we can always be sure of is that God intends to refresh others through our lives. And he intends to refresh you through the lives of others. So my question for you tonight is, are you walking in that ministry? That is his will for your life. As Paul said back in Ephesians, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places. So you have all the resources you need to grow. You have all the resources you need to love hard people. And this is how you will be a blessing to others. I'd encourage you tonight to to think on one of these qualities that you need to focus on. One area that you need to improve in to be a maturing Christian. Commit, Commit that to the Lord. And he'll give you the grace that you need. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us as we put it into practice in our lives. Help us not to only be hearers, but to be doers. Help us in this, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.